Welcome to... Hey, Great Shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Crack Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. What is something we haven't done in far too long here on our Great Shot podcast feed? I can tell you. It's have Crack Rackets writer and friend of the program, David Gertler, on the show to talk about the latest happenings on the ATP Challenger Tour. So, to rectify that situation, that's exactly what we did today. We are joined by Crack Rackets writer, all about tennis blog founder, David Gertler, to discuss our all-stars for the month of May on the ATP Challenger Tour. We also discuss what was a jam-packed week of action last week. There were five different challengers happening across three different surfaces around the globe. As such, we know we already had a Monday recap pod with Damian Kust, Jakob Bobro, but given that there were five challenger events, I think at a minimum we can have two challenger podcasts here on Cracked Rackets this week. So again, what David and I do, we recap all of last week's exciting action. We then offer our all-stars on the ATP Challenger Tour for the month of May. We get into so many different players, players that you can imagine, uh, such as Juan Pablo Varias, who won himself a challenger title, a guy like Jack Sock, a guy Tanasi Kokonakis, Bernard B. Zapata Morales. We also talk about all of last week's exciting action across the board, whether that's Chris Eubanks winning the title in Orlando. I mean, legitimately, too many, uh, think Francis Tiafo knocking off Dennis Kudla in Nottingham, too many fantastic results over these past five weeks of challenger action to preview, to, you know, preview everything that David and I discussed on this podcast, but sincerely, if you are an ATP Challenger nerd like we are here at Cracked Rackets, this will be the episode for you. It is a fantastic conversation that I am sure all of you will enjoy. Of course, the reason we're able to have fantastic conversations day in, day out, week in, week out on the Great Shot podcast feed is because of the support we get from all of you listeners, from our Crack Rackets Patreon family, and of course, from our friends at Turn of Tennis. You guys know the deal. It's the only grip that gets tackier when you sweat. And by the way, with the weather changing outside like it is, we are all going to start sweating on the tennis court at higher and higher amounts. It's also its performance in hot and humid conditions unmatched. And you guys already know that trademark iconic blue color can be seen on the rackets of hundreds of touring pros. Now, if you would like to join the Turn of Tennis family, you can contact them to get college pricing or free samples by emailing sales at uniquesports.com or calling 800 554 You mentioned Crack Rackets sent you. Again, they'll treat you like family. They'll hook you up with the samples, with the pricing that you need. So, to join the Turn and Tennis family, to support their support of our podcast, you can contact them by emailing sales at uniquesports.com or calling 800-554-3707. Now, with all of that said, Let's get to today's podcast, talking about our May ATP Challenger All-Stars and recapping all of the action happening at the Challenger level with our friend David Gertler. Westoff, roll the episode. Joining us on the podcast once again today, a returning champion here on our Crack Racket shows, although it's been far too long since we've had him on, so I'm very excited to be joined today by a writer you know from our website, CrackRackets.com, from Last Word on Tennis, and of course from his All About Tennis blog. You may also know him as Tennis Blogger One on Tennis Twitter. I know him as my friend David Gertler. David, hey, great shot. Welcome back to the program, my friend. How are you doing? I'm doing great, actually. Uh, this right before we recorded this, the Pelicans' head coach got fired, so I am no pun intended fired up. 
Did they fired Al Gentry this morning? Uh, it was it's Stan Van Gundy now. Uh, oh, it's Stan. They fired Stan Van after one year. Yeah, he was just terrible. Uh, he oh. didn't relate to the players very well. His schemes were outdated. He was. It was a terrible hire in the first place. The next next up is the general manager on my uh, who I want out next, uh, David Griffin. So. You don't think Griffin's got a good done a good job assembling talent? I mean, the Stephen no. Adams contract not great, but all the other pieces he got Zion like that's half the battle. Well, yeah, but I could have drafted Zion. <laughs> I <laughs> I would have you know that was the obvious pick. Uh, but uh, well, I'll give him one more year. He is. Oh, well, I guess we'll see what happens with this hire. Yeah, no, that's crazy. And again, we won't do. 20 minutes on Pelicans basketball, I promise. But uh, obviously, that is some surprising news. So, damn, I like that we get the rapid response from you, David, of course. Also, since we've last spoken, I believe you have completed your grad school program. So, of course, on behalf of all of us here at Cracked Rackets, mazel tov to you. Westoff, cue that applause sound effect, please. Thank you all. Yeah, of course. Again, that's the sort of stuff we are happy to support here at Crack Rackets. But, of course, the reason I wanted to have you back on the show, you know, here at CR, I've been diving into the college tennis world at the start of May. And then, of course, from there, you transition right into the start of the French Open. Crazy to think, David. It's been about a month since we've had you on the show. In that time, we have had 14 Challenger events unfold now. It's too much. I can't remember. No, well, what I was going to say is 14 events in a five-week span compared to three events over the course of six weeks last year. Like, it feels like things have finally returned to normal on the Challenger circuit. Would you agree? Oh, yeah. I'll tell you what, though. The five in a week plus all the ATP and WTA, it's like tennis overload at times. But you know what? It's better than, you know, the East Coast exhibition, which is what we were getting this time last year, you know. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Give me all of the challengers. Throw it all at me. I don't care if it's six different surfaces, six different time zones. Like, it is crazy to think. And shout out to Biela, which has hosted, what, seven challengers this year or something crazy like that. And, you know, again, shout out to Orlando for finally getting their act together. Why the USTA doesn't have at least one Futures event and perhaps even a challenger event as well happening every week at the USTA National Campus is something that baffles me, David, because having spent two weeks there, I promise you they have enough courts to do it. And it's just like, why wouldn't we make that the mechanism for competing uh, in American professional events week in, week out? Why wouldn't we make Orlando the hub, the place to do that? That's a discussion, I suppose, for another time. But you're right. Like last week, hard courts, clay courts, grass courts, all in play at the challenger level it is a little overwhelming at the same time i feel like the fields haven't suffered too badly i feel like the quality of play the quality of winter we're seeing week in week out is still pretty high yeah not nottingham when i looked at the entry list i thought it was particularly strong um the first nottingham uh for from last week i know we're now there's now a nottingham too which is great to see grass court tennis back too isn't that just uh a treat it's been two years uh, do we want to do this now, this tangent on grass court tennis? I, Yeah, let's do it quickly, I, just because we have... I haven't talked to you in a while, so it's good. We can get it all out. I'll, I'll get it all on off our chest now. I just like... I'm not the biggest fan of grass court tennis. I'll say it. It's a little bit simple for me. It's like, okay, cool. You hit a big forehand. You hit a big serve. You won the point. These rallies are five balls or less. 
90% of the time versus on the clay courts, on hard courts, when we'll say it's 75% of the time. And I just feel like the play gets so monotonous. And it's just, like, especially because of how hard that transition is from clay to grass courts where it's just immediate. And it's just, you get, you know, three months of grinding, physical, impossible to hit a winter tennis into four weeks of just chaos and slippages and knees getting injured. And I'm just like, ah, I'm good on this. No, I, I feel that. I, I would say at the same time, it's just, first off, it's been a while since we've had it. So, but second <laughs> it's off, true. It's a, I think it's just a good contrast for me. I don't like grass court tennis compared to clay court tennis, but it's nice after so much clay to just have that contrast. At the same time, though, I was watching Shapovalov Vukic yesterday, and, you know, it was just a serve fest. And for me, that's not super compelling to watch, um, but... I, I think it's good as a contrast. Yeah, I again, it has its place. Like, there's no denying that. And good grass court tennis can be very enjoyable. And there's a lot of side to side direction, and you're moving constantly. But just, it's just like the quality of play suffers. Like, there's no the the physicality element of the sport. I feel like it's taken away. Is that fair? Yeah. No, I completely agree with that. Uh, yeah, we're back Where's to agreeing the about everything. Uh, yeah, good. It's been. It took us ten minutes, five minutes to find our groove, but we're back, David. That's good. That's good to hear. Um, no, again, overall, give me as many challengers as we can. As I mentioned, fourteen events in five weeks. That sounds delightful to me. But you know, again, it's certainly grass court season, and with that in mind, let's actually talk about this past week's challengers. That feels like a perfect transition. We did have our first couple of grass court events on the ATP calendar, in particular on the ATP challenger level. We got the return of the Nottingham challenger, and I will say I have a particular fond spot for grass court challengers because it does feel like there have been so many notable breakthroughs that happen on in those challengers in the weeks leading up to Wimbledon that actually do manifest themselves in the Wimbledon main draw but of course you go to Nottingham not often you get to say this two Americans David end up in the final and in the end in the battle of College Park Francis Tiafo knocks out Dennis Kudla in straight sets for Tiafo on the week played some fantastic tennis yeah. as he got wins over Marc-Andrea Husler uh, Ilya Marchenko Evgeny Donskoy uh, Marius Kopel before knocking off Kudla of course there yeah, and that's and the big thing, he only dropped one set throughout the course of the match. And, you know, I've got a fun fact for you, David. Now, on, currently on the ATP Tour, if you include just ATP-level events, there are 16 players who have won titles on clay, hard courts, and grass. If you include ATP challengers, there are 32 players who have pulled off all three at the challenger level or higher. Tiafo's now one of those 32. And I think that's the place to start, David, because... Does he have, you know, is the forehand always going to be the first thing that's talked about with Francis Tiafo? Unfortunately, that's probably the case. But you look at the serve, you look at the backhand, you look at the returns, you look at the creativity, you look at the physicality. It's taken a little bit longer than we expected, just given how quickly he broke through the ATP Challenger Tour. But you look for Francis Tiafo now comfortably back inside the top 75 seems to have solidified his spot there David and just overall I think he's just a really complete player I think his skill set 
uh, translates across surfaces, and I think we see that manifested in this result. Yeah, so he really, in the final against Kudla, he destroyed the Kudla second serve. Uh, he, Kudla only won 31%, 8 of 26. So there so he, there was actually a lot of second serve points. Sometimes that number can be, second serve percentage can be deceiving just because maybe they only play 12 second serve points or 10, you know. But he he won only 8 of 26, which I thought uh, Kudla did. So Tiafa returned great. I watched uh, the match, some of the match against Donskoy. He served great um, in that. That was a tough match. Donskoy's a good uh, grass court player, um, a little flatter, hits the ball a little flatter. And Tiafo really had to work hard, and uh, he served great. And he got the break in the third set and just ran with it, um, which is sometimes what can happen on grass. Is All it takes is one slip up here and there, and, and you're done in the set. Um, and so Tiafa did a great job managing his serve. Uh, and yeah, even against Copel, Copel is a big serving um, in the in the semifinals. He played Copel, and he's a big serving uh, player, good grass court player. And he really still, you know, held Copel to eight of twenty five points on his second serve. So he returned these big, he returned the serve really well. And that was a great. It was great to see him. And that, that that's. Um, that stat that you gave uh, with the three different surfaces, I, that's a little surprising because you ne- don't necessarily see Francis as this all-court player, but good for him. Well, that's, the, that's the point I'm trying to make is I think we should see him as an all-court player, David, because the physicality, and again, the physicality he's able to introduce on clay courts, on hard courts, we've seen him make a fourth round at the U.S. Open. We've seen him make quarterfinals of the Australian Open. We've seen him, you know, go the distance in these clay court matches. was up two sets to love at the French Open. Then he lost that match to Stevie, obviously particularly disappointing. That was but- shocking. Yeah, but the skill set translates for him. I mean, he's won that challenger title in Parma uh, at the end of last season. And, you know, again, you look for him here on the grass courts. He won about 75% of his first serve points in each of his matches. He fought off 25 of the 31 break points he faced on the week. And to your point... He was on top of these second serve returns, and you know, for so so often in his career, it was hit a big serve to his forehand. You're going to take control of the point, but how condensed that backhand backswing is. His backhand return, I'm not sure if it's elite, but it's very very good. And then on these grass courts, even when he has to hit the chip or the slice forehand return, that ball just stays so low, and his ability to take the ball early, be aggressive, get to the net, and just make you uncomfortable. Like, no one looks better on a tennis court when things go to shit, when the uh, improvisation of a point starts, than Francis Tiafo. And I just think you look for him, again, currently right now, in the live rankings, he's sitting, I believe, at number 63. Now, his career high is still number 29. You look ELO rating-wise, he's number 52 overall. Again, 23 years old. The thing is, I still think he has upside, but that floor for him has risen remarkably over the past 15 months. Oh, definitely. Uh, it's hard to believe he's 23. I feel like I've been watching him. For so long, back when he was playing Arguello in the uh, Tallahassee in one of the green court finals back in his first final. It's just crazy how far he's come. Uh, and, yeah, you're right. I th- I'm excited to see – because you're right that the Stevie Johnson loss, that, that was you know a little disappointing. But I think he can make some noise at Wimbledon. I really do. I mm-hmm. Because there really isn't a reason why he can't be successful on grass. You know, his backhand, like you mentioned, is – I would call it – 
I would call it elite. I mean, what what do we define as elite? I guess I guess you know, for me, it's elite. It's flat. It works well on grass. Um, in the forehand, yeah, it's maybe not the most technically sound shot, but I'm always a fan of just making. You know, it doesn't matter if it's technically sound. If it works for a player, that's what matters the most. Uh, mm-hmm. And so. You know, someone like uh, I think of when I think of that, I think Misha Zverev. Yeah, his maybe his forehand. It's not the most technically sound, but he crafted his game to a way to the point where it worked for him, and that's what's most important. And so for Tiafo, I think it. I think it might all come to come together at Wimbledon. Maybe he can make the second week, or uh, maybe that's a little bold. Uh, no, I, I think it's a fair thing to say because, and not to get back to the agreeing, but he's 15-11 in his career on grass. The last two Wimbledons went third round 2018, beat Verdasco, beat Benito before losing in four to Hatchinov, or excuse me, losing in five to Hatchinov. And by the way, that was another match he had a two sets to love lead in. And then Wimbledon 2019 loses first round to number 12 seed Fabio Fognini. That was another five set loss for him. I don't think it's a bold prediction at all to say second week is in the cards for Francis Tiafo. Again, his comfort level moving forward on these grass courts so important. His just ability to play improvisational broken tennis. That like that's why I don't think I love grass court as much as I love the other surfaces is because you just play so much broken tennis where you know again it's an approach down the line or someone hits a chip and now you're reaching for a ball in no man's land. You know that middle third of the court and it's just things get ugly and no one thrives at ugly tennis more than Francis Tiafoe. Yeah. So I agree with you. I think he's a really good fit for this surface. And it was great to see him uh, beat Bettinay in London. Uh, mm-hmm. That was a great, you know, to see him, you know, continue on with the form. And yeah, in his next match, he plays uh, Troitsky, uh, Troitsky, which is not an easy grass court match. So I'm, I'm interested to see how he does against Victor. Uh, yeah, and I mean, he can make a... You know, Denis Shapovalov, that plays Feliciano Lopez, you know, who would be, after Troitsky, the next opponent for Tiafoe. I think he can maybe make a run in London, too. Absolutely. The uh, the, uh, ATP event, I mean. Yeah, no, uh, of course. And fun fact for you right now, and we haven't had a grass court season in over a year, so it's very, very noisy right now. What is Francis Tiafoe ranked grass court specific ELO rating, David? Give me your guess. Oh, man. I'm going to be so wrong. You're framing it like he must be better than his ranking, so I'm going to say 30. 19th. 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 Yuri Vesely, 17th. Inject that in my veins, David. That is fantastic. Feliciano Lopez right now? I don't want to say what he's ranked because I think people may swerve in their cars if they're listening to this. He's fourth in grass court ELO rating. Like, that's just beautiful. Yeah, but how – I mean – yeah, you're right. Yeah, no, it's a down. noisy number. It, it'll, 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 it'll wear. It's you know, it'll they'll all even out eventually. But like, you can make a legit case. He probably should be fourth right yeah. now. Yeah, but I just worry with his age now. Is he going to be able to like hold up? You know, for over the course of a full tournament. I don't. Yeah. Who yeah. Knows? Felix Felix Ogier Aliasim currently fifth. David in, uh, in grass court Elo. Uh, Although, if you look at his record. <laughs> Well, if you look at his record, he made finals of Hala or – he made the finals he, of a grass court tournament made, in 2019. It was Stuttgart. Yeah, Stuttgart, exactly. Yeah, and then, you know, this year makes another final, loses to Chilich uh, in Germany. 
Yeah, I like the grass court success is there. Talk about playing on your front foot, mo- be moving forward, today. being the aggressor. Yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, do you want to do two seconds on Felix? I know he's 0-8 in finals now. I talked about him a little bit yesterday on the mini break podcast, but we haven't talked in a while, so we're hitting the broad spectrum here. David, any Felix thoughts to add? Yeah, I just worry about him mentally. How many finals can he lose before, you know, he starts – I mean – he looked so good today against Mel Federer was terrible today. No offense. <laughs> I'm a Federer fan. He was terrible. He was missing shots that I've just never seen him miss before. But he still beat him. And, you know, he always looks – Felix always looks great until the final. I don't know what happens in these finals. You know, Chilich is a good player, a good grass mm-hmm. player. He was serving fantastic last week. Um, but at some point, Felix just has to get it done. And – he hasn't yet, and I don't know. You know, it's definitely a mental burden, but it's you know, at some point you got to buck up and get it done. Uh, no, it's it's a fair point to make, and it's just how bad the statistics look compared to you know uh, in finals compared to elsewhere. He's made a fairly similar percentage of first serve, sixty two percent versus sixty four for his career, but his first serve win percentage drops by twenty percent. His second serve win percentage drops by five percent. His break percentage drops by ten percent from twenty one percent to eleven percent. If you have an eleven percent break percentage, you are essentially returning serve like a bad. John Isner performance like that is that's not good that's what Felix Ogier-Aliassime is as a returner in some of these finals and again context is king a loss to Berrettini in 2019 losses indoors to Zverev and Tsitsipas in 2020 in finals on hard courts like those are fine losses but to your point you know, I like to think I've been giving him as much slack as possible. I'm the leader of that FAA bandwagon. I still see Grand Slams, perhaps even multiple Grand Slams in his future. Not perhaps. I think it's a when, not an if. Um, but you're you're not wrong. Like, and in, in fairness, he's not 21 yet. Until he can legally drink in the United States, I'm not going to hold any of his results against him. But you're right. To a certain point, like... This was a winnable match. This is a match if you're going to be an elite of the elite on the tour for a long time. You beat Marin Cilic at this stage, and you just didn't do it. And it was just like, I know Cilic served well, but in that first set, it felt like Felix got to 30-all in every game they played, and he was only able to convert one of his five breakpoint chances. Yeah, and I want to, we talked about his return a lot. I want to talk about his serve a bit, specifically. Because let's, mm-hmm. I'm just going to compare his semifinal versus his final um, performance. In uh, the semifinals against Query, he won 70% of his second serve points. In the final against Chilich, he only won 47%. That's a yeah. that's like the difference, I think. Hundred percent, and that's a that's a nerves thing. Yeah, because he's got he's so, expected to take advantage of those second serve. I mean, or, exactly. excuse me, he's like, you know, he gets nervous and maybe we'll just put him in. Um, as opposed to going for him in the final, so um, mm-hmm. no, yeah, you know. absolutely. Well, no, it, it's it's all it's all fair. And again, we've gotten distracted here, but in terms of just putting a bow on the grass court results we saw last week, you know, Kudla currently right now, by the way, twenty third in tennis abstracts grass court ELO ratings, and that's correct. Like yeah. he should be that high in the grass court specific rankings. He's a guy who's made a round of 16. He's a guy who could very well find himself in the top 100 at the end of this grass court season. Currently ranked number 117. Now, uh, if he wins the challenger this week, which he's poss- uh, very capable of doing, he's playing Nottingham 2. He would be in the. T- Anderson, huh? 
Yeah, oh, you look for Dennis Kudla last week, the wins he was able to earn uh, over the course of the week. Kudla gets wins over Thomas uh, Machak, Mahak, however you want to pronounce it. He also gets wins uh, over Liam Brody, Dan Evans, Camille Matrizak before, again, getting knocked off by Tiafo. You look at some of the other results, Dan Evans, your one seed, got knocked off, as mentioned, by Kudla in the quarterfinals. Kevin Anderson, your four seed, knocked off by Marius Kopel, 6-6 six and six in the quarterfinals. I thought this was a pretty good result. I thought, you know, again, take some adjustment time, getting back into what grass tennis looks like and adjusting myself to those expectations, but I thought this was a pretty good first event in Nottingham. Well, if you like longer rallies, you'd probably, you know, you probably enjoyed watching uh, Dennis Kudla because he really did a great job of just getting serves back, prolonging points. He, he looked like he knew what he was doing. His ground strokes really cut through the court well. <laughs> it was awesome to watch him, and yeah, he could he was close to losing against both Evans. He, well, he went three sets in every match of the tournament, um, which is just nuts. And I watched the match against Evans and uh, Madrizak, excuse me for the pronunciation, pronunciation. He was real close to losing both of those. And against um, Camille uh, Madrizak, he actually was, uh, I believe he had a match point against him in the third set, and he managed to scrap and claw through that match so it was just great to see his fighting spirit he really he was solid from the baseline he got served back and it was a great result i was i have to admit and this is i like wimbledon for this but it does add some pressure uh, they like to give uh wild cards for the main draw to people who do well in the grass court challengers and for the women the itfs so tiafo was already in the main draw so I was kind of rooting for Kudla to win that just because it meant more, you know, because he would have made the main draw most likely with a wild card. He still might get it, um, but um, there's definitely an extra pressure to the grass court challengers because of that wild card kind of hanging over their heads. No, there's no denying that. And again, I feel fairly confident in saying Dennis Kudla is going to get into that main draw of Wimbledon. You also look at him 117 right now in the rankings. That's pretty close, depending on the withdrawals we get, depending on, again, all of these different things. He'll he'll be on the bubble for sure. And again, I like him in qualifying regardless of yeah. who he plays. But no, it was a really fun week of action in Nottingham. And again, we're not going to spend 10 minutes on all of this past week's challengers, because if we do, this is going to be a four-hour podcast. <laughs> But, you know, Evans, three-set loss. Anderson, six-and-six six loss. Those are obviously two of the big names you think. We've seen Anderson in a Wimbledon final. We know Dan Evans on these courts could be particularly effective. But they just lost to the better players on those days in Kudla and Kopel. However, with that in mind, let's talk about some of the non-Nottingham action we saw unfold last week. And we had a couple of clay court events. You look up and down the board. Let's start in Kazakhstan. Zizu Bergs, who we have talked about before on this podcast, who now finds himself at number 90 in Tennis Abstract's ELO ratings as he earns, I believe, a third challenger final of this season alone and a third challenger title as well, this time first one on clay as he knocks yeah, off Timo Face. Huh? I was just, is he knocks off Timothy Skatov in three sets in Almaty, uh, in Almaty, Almaty. We'll call it Almaty, Kazakhstan. Uh, you look for Berg's again three set wins for him over Kopenhans in the quarterfinals, Popko in the semifinals, and Skatov in the finals. 
Is it time to start talking about him as a top 100 player? How good is Zizou Burgs, David? We, well, I have to, first off, let me admit that with Almonte, the time zone was a nightmare for me. An absolute nightmare. This was straight YouTube and replay watching. Um, I'll say this. First off, we have egg on our faces because we, <laughs> we, I remember that we were going off how he's not going to be good on clay, and then he won a clay court challenger. So, you know, he proved us wrong. Um, I'll say, I, I, I think he. This is just, but perhaps he's not a clay court specialist. He's just, I think, a good player in general. Um, I just think that the ball, like I was, um, I think, like we've talked about before, the ball explodes off his racket. His forehand is huge. He can get some pop off the serve. Um, beating Copahans, I think, is the most impressive one of the week. Uh, that Kimmer doesn't give you anything, and he's still able to really uh, die dominate on return at least with or not dominate but have a good return uh stats with 65 percent first serves pot with copahans only winning 65 percent of first serves and 45 percent of second serves and breaking copahans five times that's that's a solid stat and i really think that birds is definitely coming and he's gonna be in grand slam qualifying soon he's gonna be i think in grand slam main draw soon i think he's the top 100 by the end of next season is definitely within reach. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, I so I wouldn't quite say, I wouldn't quite go top 100 that soon, A, because of just the points. It's so freaking difficult for any of these players to get into the top 100 right now if you didn't already start there and you look for Bergs currently at number 220 in the actual live rankings, which is uh, certainly lower than his ELO rating of number 90. But to your point, He's 34 and 11 now, David, in his last 52 yeah. weeks. And it started at the futures level, but he ripped through that. And now he's played challengers since then. And I mean, we can go back to St. Petersburg, where he came through qualifying in March to win that title. Ditto, by the way, when he won his second title in France later on in the month. And now here, you know, finally he doesn't have to come through qualifying. And he gets, I think, really good wins across the course of the week. This was not a. You know, a fluke draw. I know it was challenger number five, but to get Marcelo Thomas Barrio Vera, a guy we are both big fans of on the clay first round, and to get, yeah, and to get through that match, seven, you know, two, six, seven, six, six, three, eleven, nine second set breaker, uh, and then from there, kind of run through the rest of your week and get a bunch of uh, three set wins down the home stretch as well. Birch just played good ball. And again, he didn't get broken much throughout the course of this week either. And I think that serve for him is going to be the key thing moving forward. Because I think yeah. that first serve is a weapon, David. Yeah. Absolutely. I don't care if it's a hard court. I don't care if it's a clay court. It sets up the first forehand that he wants to hit. And he's done a really good job of hitting that forehand when it's offered to him. Now, again, movement-wise... I still have some questions because he's, I would say, a good, not great athlete. And I do wonder with his size, does he need to be a great athlete, a great mover to right. sustain a place in the top 100? But, I mean, he's pretty twitchy. I like The more I think about it, it's not a direct game style, but it's a little Davidovich fokina e. Honestly, it's a little Casper Rudy as well. When I watch him hit forehands, all I think is the Casper Rude forehand. But I, I do think, again, he, he hits the ball. Like, both wings yeah. he's solid off of. There's not a discernible weakness, which I think is a very good thing for a player that young. Yeah, at least, uh, I mean, I don't think, I think, I still don't think he's the greatest mover, but at this level, it doesn't matter for now. Mm -hmm. it, well, it doesn't matter that much. Um, 
And yeah, you're right. That against Barrios, uh, Vera, he again how ten the small margins in tennis. Barrios Vera had a match point on his own serve. And if he converts that, then we're talking about something totally different. But it just shows the mental toughness that Burks has to come through a match like that. We saw it in the final in France when he uh, beat uh, Bar- Barrera in that third mm-hmm. set tiebreak in the final um, to win that challenger. He he is mentally tough. The, like you said, the serve's huge. Forehand's huge. He can control the baseline so well. And the movement's not actively hindering him um, as of yeah. now. So, now, I do worry. Sometimes I think it, his forehand can be pressured by pace. And, of course, I'm still talking about Zizou Bergs here, uh, who was your challenger champion over in, uh, I believe it was El Mati, uh, again, El Mati this past week. But I do think that forehand backswing is big, right? And I think yeah. on these clay courts, he could get away with it. Again, the higher of level of competition, the more that forehand's going to be pressured by pace. At the same time, like again, the numbers speak for themselves for Bergs. He's now 34 and 11 in the last 52 weeks, has just been ripping through challenger event after challenger event. And it's crazy, you know, April to May, he loses in Rome qualifying. He then loses in Hellebron qualifying. He then loses in, or he then gets through Oeris, uh, Oeris qualifying before losing first round to Hugo Gaston. Finally gets into a main draw at the challenger level and wins it. And to your point, he faced a match point in that first round. Speaks to the margins, how thin everything is at the challenger level but he followed that up with a win here this week and I know he got knocked out round of 16 I believe today by Pavel Kotov but I mean he's tired looking yeah and moving forward for Zizou Bergs now what's the goal at the end of this season top 150 like is that the goal we should hold him to because where he never has to worry about getting into challengers again you know what I would like I would like to see him qualify for the U.S. I'd like to see him get into qualify that's a great yep that's what Mm -hmm. I would say the goal should be Mm-hmm. Because the thing is, again, I need to see his game pressured by a higher level of pace, right? I do need to see uh, how his how his game like Copenhagen's. I feel like is such a good match for Zizou Bergs, which yeah. is like, oh, you're not going to hurt me, perfect. But he's also tough because he's not going to give you anything either. That I mm-hmm. think Copenhagen. I love Kimmer. Uh, Kimmer's oh, one as of my favorite challenger players because he doesn't give anything away. Um, mm-hmm. And then also a couple other. Can I just? Uh, Talk about a couple of. Floor, I was gonna say, floor is yours. Okay. Give me the rest of the rundown. I've got like three minutes on Timofey Skatov as well. Okay. If you're if you're ready. Before we get to Skatov, I want to say shame on Dmitry Popko for retiring in that spot in the third set. I believe he was uh, five one down. Five one down. That I that's becoming a trend where people are just starting to re- like Holger Rune retired when he was about to lose against uh, Yamur in uh, France last week. Uh, I saw, I saw Dojovic uh, retired right before he was going to lose the first set. I just don't – I think that's, to be honest, kind of shady, and I don't like it mm-hmm. at all. Um, so I think that tennis really needs to do something about that um, because it's just uh, – we, we saw, you know, Arthur DeGrief recently got busted by the uh, TIU, uh, the, the Tennis Integrity Unit. I think that we need to take a hard look at some of these uh, retirements in these spots. Um, and then to your so, – that aside, to Skatov, um, I saw him play a lot in Oiris o- um, when he made a run there and lost to uh, Rune. Uh, I would say with him, not a lot of weapons at all, but he's very consistent. Um, I think that his backhand needs some major work, 
and he hits the ball long a lot from what I've noticed. Uh, but he's pretty, but he's solid and he's, he's fine. I don't see him rising very high in the rankings though, to be honest. What do you, what was your uh, theory on him? What was your theory? Well, again, you look at his results of late and it's worth noting for Skatov, I believe he's what, 20 years old or just turned, yeah, 20 at the start of this past year and, you know, 324 in the rankings, 37 and 23 now uh, in his last 52 weeks. And yeah, we talked about that match he played in Oeris where he ended up losing to Holger Rune. It's interesting to me because if I if memory is serving me correctly, it does feel like uh, again he's a guy who puts a ton of balls in play, really high first serve percentage, and you look for him over his last fifty two weeks in the numbers that have been statted. He's made seventy four point three percent of his first serves. He's only winning sixty percent of those first serve points, David. Now he's winning fifty two point one percent of his second serve points, but a hold percentage of sixty seven point seven. You're just not moving the up much higher on the the surrendalo problem. Exactly, where it's just like, oh, that's great that you can win forty three percent of your return points break at a you know thirty four point six percent clip. If you can hold that up, you're prime Novak Djokovic as a returner, and that's awesome. But there's only three people who return at that level: Djokovic, Nadal, and then Diego Schwartzman on clay. Yeah. Like, I'm sorry, and with all due respect to Timofey, he is none of those three players. Right. And so I do think he's a guy who puts a million balls in play. I do think he's a guy who's a really tough out, and I expect to see him linger in that 200 to 300 range for a little bit of time, but I need to see a weapon develop. That's I the piece missing I completely agree. I would also say that while he puts a lot of balls in play, like I said before, I noticed that sometimes when he wants to put depth on the ball, he does. He sometimes hits it. He hits it long more than you would expect, um, mm-hmm. at least from what I've seen from him. Um, and so I just, you know, like there's no weapon. And so how high how high can he really go? He can grind down some challenger guys, but in terms of potential, someone like Birds is miles, has mi- miles ahead of him, so much more potential. And that's not huh. he's done. He's done great. I think he's done great to even make it this far. I don't I didn't, I didn't expect to see him in a challenger final. Yeah, and he's 20 years old, so it's like it's only going to get better. There's no denying that. He's got plenty of time to develop a weapon, but until he does, he's got a defined ceiling. It's not mean to say that, I don't think, at all. And, you know, again, that's the thing for so many of these challenger players. And you look here at this event, again, your semifinalists, Popko and Jason Sung, uh, the talented former world junior number one who got knocked off by Skatov 6-2-6-3. Your seeds in this event, Andre Martin, knocked off in the quarterfinals by Popko, Kopenhans, three-set loss to Bergs, Furnace, Kuzmanov, your other quarterfinalists. Any final thoughts on Almaty? Are you ready to move uh, on? What, what do you think of the Popko incident? <laughs> I mean, it's so tough because I hate to insinuate nefarious motives if I'm not 1,000% certain, but, like, it's a pattern. That's the problem, is it's a pattern in a Dimitri Popko match in the Dimitri Popko matches, and to your point— it's a pattern we've seen across the board. Like, I agree. It's it's a competition thing. It's also like a—I don't want to say it's a gentleman's thing because that's sort of a simplification, but it's, it's kind of like, look, you agreed to play the tennis match. Like, yeah. if you are on the court, finish the match. Like, all right, you know you're going to lose. You're just trying to save yourself an extra five minutes. Well, just go through the freaking process. Like, we're not asking you yeah. for much. You've already made yourself a finalist, and, you know, again— 
there are gamblers out there who perhaps are very frustrated because they're like, what the hell? You withdraw now. My bet is halved or whatever. And I, again, that's that's the nefarious motives. Let's just be clear here. When you withdraw from a match like that, the bet is null. And so the person just gets their money back or in your case, you don't suffer the loss, whatever it may be. But like – I agree with you. It, the only thing that comes out of someone doing something like that, unless it's a noticeable cramp where you can't yeah. walk or oh, it's like a noticeable tumble. Like yeah. David Goffin retiring after dropping the second set yesterday against whomever he was playing. It's I'm blanking out in my head. I think it was Quarantine Mute. Um, like I get that yeah. because he could not play on. And you're like, yeah, this is stupid. Like you have been a shell of yourself this entire second set. Let's not play the third. You need to go retire and you need to go get healthy for Wimbledon. Yeah. This This was not that. Uh, yeah, and I would say also it's in stark contrast to when uh, I know they were Virginia teammates. Alexander Richard was actually cramping up on court against Kwiatkowski in Little Rock, and he, he still played out the rest of the match out of respect for Kwiatkowski. So uh, that's the opposite approach. And I, you know, and obviously if you're cramping on court, you don't have to play. But it was, you know, that I'm not saying that like cramped players should be, you know, gutting it out, but. It was just basically the opposite of what we've seen with, like, Rune or uh, Popkow and those type of scenarios. Um, no, I, I could not agree with you more. And again, with that in mind, that is your Almaty uh, challenger. We're going to rip through these other ones quickly because not that the results weren't interesting, but I think we're going to talk about some of these other players a little bit later as well. So... Cuevas knocks off Emer in Lyon. Your other semifinalists there, Bagnus, Taro Daniel, your quarterfinalists, Pellegrino, Steve Altmaier, and Holger Rune, who, as you mentioned, 6353, he retires down to Elias Emer in the quarterfinals. We'll talk about Rune certainly when we get to our uh, aces of the month or our all star team, whatever we call them. But any thoughts on Lyon? Yeah, so Cuevas was just much better than the rest of the field. In the final, he won 83%. And it wasn't particularly close, to your point. Yeah, besides Kachin was very close to beating him. And then after that, he just exploded through the rest of the field. Um, won eight, in the final against Yamuri, won 83% of his first serve points. He held Yamuri to only uh, 36% of his second serve points won. Um, he just he dominated. That was a 6-2, 6-2 in the final. Um and yeah, besides that Kachin match, um, in actually Cuevas' first match of the week, he didn't lose a set. He won easily. Um, so yeah, it was just a. This was just a matter of a player just being at a much higher level than the rest of the field. Yeah, Emer just couldn't hurt him. Like there was nothing Emer could do. And it's funny because you watch Emer explode through some forehands, and you're like, "Really? This guy can't hurt you?" And it's like, "Nope, he can't." And let me show you why. And yeah. he didn't. And it was freaking insane. And so again. It's a really good performance from him in Lyon. We move on now uh, to Bratislava uh, in the Slovak Republic, where, of course, Talon Griekspor hands Sebastian Baez uh-huh. a loss in a clay court challenger. Griekspor knocking off Baez 7-6-6-3. Uh, your other semifinalists, Klezan and Haransky. Your quarterfinalists, Laheka, Bakinger, Cam Ilkel, and Andrei Kuznetsov. Your thoughts on all of the Bratislava action. Yeah. And I- I'm going to get back to Griekspor in my all Stars, so oh. if I don't say anything here, that's why. Okay. Uh, I, I, I was actually going to focus on Baez anyway. Um, but I think Baez also has the Juan Manuel Surundolo problem. Um, I worry about the <laughs> serve. Um, I saw him, so I watched um, I watched a good bit of Baez, uh, Baez this past week. Um, saw him against Pereira Silva in, in the uh, round of 16. Saw him against uh, Hransky. I've saw, I watched him a good bit. Uh, and every time I watched him, I'm like, 
very consistent, hits his spots. Uh, he's going to get some good depth on his shots. He's a mental warrior in terms of his me- uh, mental toughness. But he doesn't have a lot of power. He doesn't have a lot of pa- pop on his serve. And I worry if he's going to be able to make the transition to the ATP tour, especially off of clay courts. Mm-hmm. No, I, I mean, look, it, there's no denying his size is going to be a problem. And it's like that you have to make the comparison to Diego Schwartzman. There's no other comparison to make in terms of game style. And just respectfully, if you don't have a big weapon and you're playing him in a clay court match, you're not beating Sebastian Baez. Like, you're just not. And yeah. again, it's so funny you look at the clay court specific ELO ratings on uh, tennisabstract.com. Baez is routinely the guy who just breaks the rankings. He's number 54 overall in ELO rating, which again would mean he's the number 54 player in the world. You look for him in terms of clay court specific ELO. You know, again, he's inside the top 25. He's at number 24 in clay court specific ELO, David. Like, he's got the skill set. There's no denying that if tennis was ground stroke games, Baez would be a top 50 guy right now. And, you know, 42 and 14 in his last 52, the results speak for themselves. Now, I think all but one of the matches have been on clay courts. And if he wants to be a top 100 player, there's no denying we need to see him play on a faster surface. But... Like, again, the all-around game set is there. Like, do I think his 45.8% win percentage and return points and 41% break percentage are translatable to higher-level matches? I genuinely do because when he gets the point back to neutral, he does such a good job of just keeping control or staying at a minimum neutral in these baseline rallies. Like, he's so good at changing direction, taking the ball early. Again, I haven't seen it yet on a faster court. But he's a top 100 guy and belongs at the ATP level in these clay court matches. There's no denying that. Oh, man. I think I have a disagreement. <laughs> I think Let's I have a disagreement. go. So make the case. Uh, um, I, You know, I just don't see it. I just, I personally just don't see it translating to, I mean, I see, I can see him grinding down maybe in the early rounds of the 250, but against the top players, I just think they're going to overpower him. I don't think he has enough pop in, uh, I don't think he has enough pop in the serve. I don't think he has, I don't think he has the level of a, or the level of power from the baseline he needs to beat some of the a top let's say a top uh, 50 opponent uh, consistently on a quicker court I agree on clay like you don't think there's a world where he's going to win one South American clay court tournament a year for the next decade no I personally no See, I think that's the path for him. No, you're not. It's it's like a fair thing to say. And again, the numbers to make 76% of your first serves, win 64% of your first serve points, 52% of your second serve points, and to have a hold percentage under 75%, that's not great. Like, you're right. That's not great. That speaks to the fact it doesn't matter if he makes a high percentage of first serves. His opponent's usually getting that ball in play and hitting it to a target. But he's only 20 years old. Like, that's the scary thing. To be 20 years old and to be 42 and 13 over a stretch of uh, 52 weeks on clay courts at the challenger level, like, that's the thing is, even if you want to filter out all of the futures matches he played uh, at the start of the post-pandemic play last season, you look for him overall, 24 and 6 in challengers in the last 52 weeks. Like, you just don't rip off a stretch like that, David, unless it's legitimate. You're right. No, I mean, winning... All these matches, it means something. I don't mean to dis, uh, discount that. Um, no, of course. Because, it, you know, 
winning breeds more winning. Uh, you know, it's there's he's really doing he's doing as much as he can given his physical limitations. Um, but I think that like for instance, Diego Schwartzman always had that backhand. Um, I, I just don't see a weapon like that for, you know, of course, Diego is, I mean, I'm comparing him to Diego, like a top 10 player, but, <laughs> you know, I just don't, I, I just don't see that big weapon that can get him through some of these matches against higher level of competition. Um, well, I do think the harder his opponent hits, the harder he hits as well. He does a really good job of absorbing, redirecting pace, but you're right. Generating pace. He doesn't generate pace as well as Schwartzman does. Yeah, um, but you know what? Again, he's only, he's so young. He has plenty of yeah. time to figure it out. That's what I'm saying. If he just like for three months in the off season, his coach is like, I don't care if you miss every forehand on the back fence. Just swing for the back fence, and we'll see what we have to do to get that ball to land for you because we got to find some more plus one opportunities. But again, for him, three set win over Horansky, six and six win over Bockinger, three set win over Federico Ferreira Silva. Like he's still unseated in some of these tournaments, David. That's the ridiculous part here, where it's like I think we do agree if it's a challenger event and it's happening on clay and. Sebastian Baez is in the tournament. You should probably throw him at least an eight seed, just on principle. Absolutely. And don't even get me started on the yeah the ranking system. I'll tell you what. <laughs> tennis makes it so hard for new fans to come in. No wonder why, you know, there's a, you know, why tennis isn't more popular. Between the convoluted ranking system, arrogant leadership. Uh, How about just, like, the scoring system? I know it's really stupid, but there are people who are like, I don't get it. What's this 15-30 thing? Where it's like, why aren't we just doing 1-2, play these games to 4, win by 2? And it's just like, oh, yeah, it's 3-all in this game, a.k.a. deuce. Like, do we really need a special term for it? We can't just say it's 3-all. Like, it's the little things that I agree. Like, for us, who have tennis in our bones, we're like, oh, yeah, 15-30. He won the first point. The other guy won the next two. But there are people who are watching it for the first time that are like, I don't get it. What's this game thing? Okay, it was 7-6, but now there's like a 2-all next to that 7-6. Is that – are they related at all? It's like, no, it's actually a new set, and he's up a break, and, and it's like, what? I don't, I don't really get that. We definitely shoot ourselves in the foot. Oh, yeah, and then not only that, it's like, well, this – you know, doubles has, uh, you know, uh, no ads, but only but only in uh, ATP and WTA events, not in the majors. And then this <laughs> this – one has a fifth set tie break. This one has a fifth set two super tie break. This one has no fifth set tie break. It's like, what the hell is going on? Yeah, no, it's like, what are we doing here? It's like, it, it, I agree with you. It's just, it's super confusing at times. And again, I suppose it confused all of us who have followed the challengers closely to see Sebastian Baez lose a clay court challenger match, but that's what he does in Bratislava to Greek Spoor. Uh, again, we'll get back to Talon Greek Spoor, who is one of my all-stars momentarily. Last one, Orlando. Eubanks earns his second challenger title first in quite a few years. You look for him throughout the week, gets really good wins over Nicolas Yeri in the quarterfinals, Riffis in the semifinals, Nicolas Maya, uh, I'm definitely butchering that pronunciation, in the final. Uh, you look at your semifinal, uh, your finalist again, Nicolas uh, Maya, semifinalist Sam Riffis, JC Aragoni, quarterfinalist Jensen Brooksby, who. Don't worry, he withdrew, he didn't lose, he still doesn't lose at challenger events, but also Emilio Gomez follows up his Little Rock performance with a quarterfinal, Yari and Ulysses Blanche, your other two quarterfinalists. You know, I said we were going to rip through the rest of them. I think we can agree. We're not ripping through the rest of them at this point. Uh, Orlando, your thoughts in particular, your thoughts on Riffis, because I feel like this is probably your first time you got to see him play. 
Uh, yeah, so, well, yeah, I'll start with Rufus, then I want to talk about Eubanks for just a second. I know we're trying to go quick. Um, no, 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 take your, uh, believe me, I don't care. It's you, I don't want to keep you here for three hours. Um, Rufus, he was solid. Um, he, I was, I was surprised he beat Blanche. I was surprised. Um, I just thought that Blanche with, I thought Blanche was playing really well with the big serve, big forehand. Um, but Rufus really neutralized him really well. Um, which I was not expecting, um, but good for him. He, I saw him play, I believe he played uh, Lorenzi in the first band, right? Um, and he, I watched that, and he he was, yeah, just solid. Uh, he got good depth on his ground strokes. He doesn't have any, like, huge weapons, at least from what I saw in my limit. You know, you've watched him, obviously, much more than I have. But I, I definitely can see him on the Challenger Tour more consistently in the future. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, the biggest threat to the Florida Gators is will Sam Riffis have enough uh, professional success to turn pro? Because I think he's a guy whose game gets better and better depending on the level of competition. I think the harder you hit the ball, the more aggressive you play, the better his game style is because it forces him to be more aggressive. And he's a guy who's got a really complete skill set, can hit the slice off the backhand wing and play defense in the outer thirds, but is also comfortable taking that ball early. Moving forward, he's comfortable at the net as well. He doesn't have an overwhelming weapon yet, but he's got the frame and he's got the skill set, I think, to develop that sort of weapon. I think he's just going to be a really well-rounded player. And, you know, again, that's what we see so often in these college tennis ranks. It reminds me a lot of Yannick Hoffman and just like the way Yannick can do a lot of things yeah. well. That's how I would describe, describe Sam's game also. I mean, Eubanks was great yeah. this week in Orlando. We can start talking about him now. Like Sam, uh, Chris just served Sam off the court, yeah. and he was hitting, connecting with his plus one ball. He was playing aggressive, decisive tennis. But I am concerned. Like I think Sam's got a top two hundred game right now. Like I do think his game is that well rounded. I know it was a little bit of a softer draw, certainly here in Orlando compared to some of the prior events, and so many seeds got knocked out early in the event, whether it was Uchiyama, Jung, Lorenzi, Escobedo, all lost round of uh, thirty two. You look Jack Sock was a guy coming off of Little Rock, lost his first round match to Mitchell Kruger. Um but there's no denying like Eubanks was I would say just the way he was the biggest hitter and, yeah. and and the ball was landing and like he does have that gear where he can just hit through anyone. Yeah, so he every match he won over 70% of his first serve points. So against uh, Mejia in the final 78%, um I will say that he got very lucky that match moved indoors. It really caused him mm-hmm. to uh lock in more so in the first set he only won 58 percent of his first serve points but in the second set he won 92 percent and in the third set he won 82 82 percent which i think is pro- partially probably because they moved indoors against riffis like he said he won 88 percent of his first serve points he overpowered sam um 72 percent against yari 81 percent against uh kruger and 74 percent against richard um overall in the entire week he only got broken four times so his his serve was uh, on fire, and it was great to see Chris win because I've said on Twitter, I don't think he has the highest ceiling just because I don't trust his return of serve or his backhand. But on any given week, he can have a serving week like this and just blow opponents away. Um, so I think it's his second challenger title, and I'm, I was happy to see. He seems like a good guy. Who ends up with a higher career high when all is said and done? Chris Eubanks, whose career high right now is number 147, but is currently ranked number 205. Or Max Cressy, who you look right now for Cressy, currently ranked, I believe, 
number 150, which is his career high. Who ends up with the higher career high ranking when all is said and done? Oh, man, you're asking the tough questions today. Yeah, um, welcome back. Do you miss me? <laughs> um, okay, so I'll say first off, I want to say with Cressy, I feel like his energy level has been a little lower recently. Like he's not. It's been off. He's been off. Yeah. He's lost five in a row. Like he's lost five in a row and he's lost 10 of his last 12. Like, yeah, I agree with you very, very much. Um, I, I don't love the double faults from him. Oh, man. I would say. Excuse me, by the way, 12 of his last 14. It has not been smooth sailing in Cressyville. I would say Cressy because I, I trust. I would say Cressy just because I, I just don't like Eubanks' backhand. No offense to Chris. I think he's a great guy, it seems like, and it's. You know, he has. Yeah. He's made the most of his game, but I think Cressy. You don't have to preface it. You can just you can dislike someone's backhand without saying they're a horrible human. <laughs> like there's nothing wrong with that. Well, I just I just don't I just think that like Eubanks is kind of like winning a few challengers. That's his ceiling. I just think that Cressy's ceiling is an ATP tour level player. I just I there's some shades of Feliciano Lopez in the decisiveness of Cressy where it's like I'm getting in and whatever happens happens where you can see Eubanks thinking a little bit more I suppose on the baseline because he does have a little bit more of a dynamic game. Now when that serve and forehand are popping for Chris particularly on a hard court particularly as you mentioned in the final when they go indoors he's just going to beat and like that's what he did. He did beat you. And that's the thing about Eubanks is I do think that that gear A does look very, very good when the ball is landing. That's why I kind of like his upside just a little bit more than Cressy's because oh, Cressy's wow. game, is, it, it's just so choppy. And, like, I think yeah. Cressy, it's easier for him to find wins than Chris Eubanks. But in terms of developing points and playing at the highest level, I, I would give Eubanks the slight edge. At the same time, you know, Chris, 19-3 and three now, age 25, uh, 19 three in his last 52, age 25, couple of challengers, semifinals, quarterfinals in the mix as well. But so much of his success has come on hard courts, and ditto for Cressy as well. I do wonder surface versatility for both of them. Chris, At the same time, like, crack, Chris, right? Chris has gotten, yeah, and he's gotten better. Like, he clearly, I think this win was significantly better than his earlier challenger win, which came, I believe, back in 2018 on the hard courts of Lyon. Like, I think he's a better player now than uh-huh. he was in 2018. I think we do see a lot of players stagnate as well. That hasn't been the case for him at the same time. You're right. Like, what's plan B? What's plan C if this first serve isn't landing or if they're getting the ball into your body and handling? You know, he's so aggressive on that return of serve. It's like, all right, well, if that's not landing today, what, are we just playing tiebreak tennis? And maybe that will be good enough. But that feels like so often for Chris, if things aren't going well for him, it's, all right, just get to the breaker and hope I can scrap that out. Yeah, I I completely agree. Uh, yeah, <laughs> good. Uh, well, uh, with that, any final thoughts on Orlando? I know we're we're gonna get back to Little Rock at the end. We've I've got a f- ten minutes on, for us on Little Rock. I would say that um, I would say that I would that um, uh, what was I? I totally lost my train of thought. No, we're good. But, um, all right, that's good. Leave yeah. that in for sure. You would say, is it a Gomez thing, a Nicolas Yari thing, a Ulysses Blanche thing? I'm still in on the Blanche bandwagon, by the way. I saw him win that Ann Arbor Challenger oh, title start of 2020, I, and I've I been following it ever since. Okay. It's Brooksby. I, I, I watched his match. Okay, good. I watched his match against Darian King. He didn't look right, um, so it didn't surprise me that he uh, pulled out. Yeah, and again, for him, I don't think any of us doubt his upside at this point for him it's just like stay healthy stay healthy healthy. he was a hundred percent of won the tournament 
Yeah, <laughs> like the crazy thing is, we can say that with pretty certain confidence as well. It's like ah, uh, like no, he probably would have won this tournament. Yeah. Um, but no, for Brooksby again retires in the quarterfinals, uh, with an injury, and with that in mind, that's everything that happened last week. Now, uh, for the sake of not keeping David for seven hours, and for the sake of forcing all of you to go read his article on our website, CrackRackets.com, what we're going to do quickly before I get your thoughts on Oliver Crawford, which will be our final conversation here. Rest assured, I'm not letting you escape today without you telling <laughs> me what your thoughts on on the former Gator, but. You look at the ATP, again, tour last month, there were nine events over the course of May, and, you know, again, when we're talking about normalizing the schedule, returning back to normal, giving players the playing opportunities they need uh, to not only sustain a livelihood, but to ascend up the rankings and prove what they've got on the ATP tour, we're finally having those opportunities return again. There were five freaking challengers to start last week, and uh, it makes doing an exercise like picking your all-star lineup from the ATP challengers in the month of May that much more difficult. Now, of course, I still ask David to do it, and he does it with ease and with excellence as well and you can read the article on our website crackedrackets.com now with that in mind I think this is the first month David where we're going to have five completely different all-stars and I want to start with yours and then we can work to mine oh no excuse me we have have one overlap I believe Uh, and we'll get to him at the end okay Um, but so so I was gonna say run me through your all-stars start at the top Save Holger Rune till last because I have him on my list as well. Okay. Um, so start, start at the top. Which one? Uh, well, the top one on my uh, notes. Can I start at the top one of my notes? Yeah. I was going to say, start at the top of your notes. Okay. doesn't have to be um, the article. The top of my notes is Jack Sock, which, and I'll tell you why. Um, mm-hmm. I'll tell you because, no, he didn't play the highest level out of anyone. But I loved his mental toughness. He was the most – I'll tell you what. You will – not find a more clutch week than what Jack Sock had. Um, so, besides the three match points that he saved against Ernesto Escobedo and Tyson Kwiatkowski, which he saved three in consecutive matches and won consecutive, uh, third, very tight third sets, um, and where I believe in both matches he was a set down. Um, he's overall in the week saved 21 of 26 break points. Um, and then his first serve was firing. He won at least 74% of the first serve points he played in every match. It looked like he picked up an arm injury against Kwiatkowski, but his forehand was still a force. He was good at knowing when to come into the net. And I just thought that because of the mental toughness he showed throughout the entire week, uh, even in the final against Gomez, he saved a love 40 to that would have got Gomez back on serve in the second set. Um, I just thought that he deserved a spot in our, our all-star rankings. Um, and I, I understand why you don't have him in there though. No, he was my last cut. He's an honorable mention. And you know, the guy I went with for one of my fifth spots, I kind of regret doing over sock, but We've talked about this before on the podcast. We talked about this when we saw him compete earlier in the year on the challenger level. When he's locked in, he's still got it. Yeah. Like, if he wants, he can end up back in the top 100. He can end up competing on the ATP Tour week in, week out. It's just, A, how committed will he be to maintaining his fitness and playing week in, week out the challenger grind that's required to get back to the top 100? And certainly now he'll be able to get into slam qualifying, which is a good thing for Jack Sock moving forward because he belongs in Grand Slam main draws. Oh, absolutely. Um, 
but yeah, he was clutch as f- Like, I, I, I can't disagree with anything. You, I don't have much to add other than the serve. I mean, because, like, what is there to say about Jack Sock's game that you don't already know? The serve is working. The forehand is working. When those two things work, he's going to be in a winning position. The key is how fit is he and how mentally locked in is he? And he was both to the extreme in uh in Little Rock. I cannot get it because that's one of the things that we've always kind of knocked Jack Sock for was, oh, his fitness mm-hmm. isn't that good. Um, And this week, it was outstanding. Or in uh, Little Rock, it was outstanding. Uh, against Cleve Kasky and against es- Escobedo, those were both long, long matches. And he was able to hang in there consecutive- consecutively. Um, so mm-hmm. I just was so impressed with him. Uh, and of course, yeah, he lost against Kruger in Orlando. After the week he had, I don't blame him. Um, he yeah, he, that's a loss he's earned. He beat Kruger in the semis of uh, of Little Rock, so that's so that was the more important win. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a schedule loss, like a hundred percent. That I I completely agree with you there. But no, Jack Sock, he was definitely in terms of the level I saw played at the Challenger Tour in May. He was one of the five guys that's most noticeable. We were like, oh, yeah, that's a top 100 player just yeah. currently playing at the challenger uh, level for extenuating circumstances. But all right, he's number one. Give me number two. Like, you know, did you want to add one or you want me to keep? Well, you know what? You're right. Let's alternate. That's very chivalrous of you. <laughs> I appreciate that. The um, Well, one of my guys we can knock out now because we already talked about him was Timofey Skatov because oh. just to see him compete at this level – over the past few months, I wasn't sure he had this in him. And you look at those results, again, we talked about it. It's not just the fact that he was able to make one challenger final in an, uh, you know, in a in a vacuum in El Mati. It's the fact that he was also made semifinals of Oyeris, uh, you know, and played pretty well there as well, coming through qualifying before getting knocked off in three by Holger Rune, who we'll talk about a little bit later. Like, again, I just, I just want to see more of him because I'm intrigued by the 20-year-old. It, it, the skill set, he just he knows how to win, and you can't fake that. And I just, again, see, that was not, those were two runs that were very unexpected for me, and you know that's the sort of thing I like to throw into my all-star to give an appearance. I expect Jack Sock to be ripping through the challenger circuit to get back where he belongs. I don't know what to expect of Timothy Skatov, so I would throw him in the mix. The guy who is my number one all-star, and it's partially because we share a birthday, October 6, 1995, shout out to the crew, Juan Pablo Varias, who, oh, I, almost, I mean, this is my last cut. Yeah, it was an incredible month of May for him. You look, he wins the title at Biela 5, and that was a little bit of a softer draw, but he follows that up by making the finals in Zagreb as well before, you know, beating Serendolo, beating Rola, beating Mailovic, who have all had a bunch of success here in 2021 before getting knocked off in a three-set final by Sebastian Baez, who we have talked about routinely on these podcasts whenever we talk Challenger 2, where I mean, Juan Pablo Varias may turn 26 this year, but he's clearly playing the best tennis of his career and is, you know, currently ranked number 133, peak ranking of number 130, which he reached uh, like uh, over the course of May. And anytime you reach a career high in, in a month, you're probably an all-star. I just, guy's nasty on clay. Like, again, all of his matches in the last 52 weeks, but one have been on clay, but he's 27 and 17. All of the, the majority of those matches either coming at the challenger level or at the ATP level. And of course, at the ATP level, he came through qualifying to qualify in Santiago, beat Souza, beat Correa before uh, losing to Green in the quarterfinals back in March. 
Like, Juan Pablo Varillas has taken an unequivocal step forward at the start of this season through the first five months, and I thought the way to, to memorialize that or symbolize whatever is to throw him in this all-star category. No, I, I completely understand that pick. I He yeah. initially broke through, I believe it was the end of 2019 when he won a couple uh, clay court challengers. The, first, the thing that stuck, stuck out to me most was his huge forehand. But then, huge forehand. But then he kind of... Uh, he, it wasn't a straight-up ascendancy like it was for Brinson Scarine when he started winning challengers at the end of 2018. Um, and he kind of fell off a bit. And it's nice to see him get back to the level that uh, he's capable of. And I really – that's what I'm talking about with a weapon. It's like Baez does not have a, like a forehand like Varias. That's what I was kind mm-hmm. of uh, – you know, and I think that, that that forehand can get him far. Um so I agree with that selection, um, even though I yeah. don't have it in my list. No, it's fair. Again, uh, I think that's uh, it's. Uh, again, I'm excited to hear the rest of your list. I guess I've already read the article, so I kind yeah. of know it. But I would say he was one for me that I was just like, with how good he was. And again, it was the multiple runs that he put together. His peak was not as high as some of the other peaks, perhaps, that we saw over the course of May. But challenger title plus an additional final uh you end up in my all-star category now back to you david next name on your list um and then this is only for his challenger performance um so it was carlos alcaraz so um i know he had the french open success but i wanted to focus on his challenger success so we won orias one of the orias um i don't sorry for the pronunciation the red clay i believe it was orias too um and he uh was just uh playing brilliant tennis uh so he so only bagness in the final was able to win more than 60 percent of his first serve points but bagness only won uh 33 of his second serve points alcaraz's other four opponents all won less than 60 percent of their first serve points and then in addition only brandon nakashima in the second round was able to hold alcaraz under 70 percent first serves first serves one and in the final Alcaraz against Bagnus, Alcaraz won 71% of his first serve points serving at 74% first serves in which I think is really good um and it's just another example of how great Alcaraz is on clay he has a 74% career winning percentage on clay which I know the sample size is smaller but the sample size is also growing now and it's still 54% um which I think is just incredible mm-hmm. yeah i can't like there's nothing else to add and when i said you know again the peak of a skatov or a pablo varias they probably didn't reach as high of a level as alcaraz did just kind of walking into a challenger and winning it and then showing up at the french open and winning multiple main draw rounds there as well uh but yeah uh, uh, why it would be an all-star appearance for alcaraz is it's just like look if he's at the challenger level and he's playing a clay court event he's probably winning it at yeah. this point of his career. And it's like, that is a noticeable development. I agree with you. That is one of the developments, certainly, of the late 20, of these last 52 weeks of play. It's like, oh yeah, Carlos Alcaraz, top 100 guy. So I can't I can't disagree with anything you said. He just makes it look so easy. Ball right. just rips through these clay courts. Yeah, I can, yeah. I, I agree with my <laughs> own selection. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> good. I'm glad to hear. Well, with that in mind, let's go to Talon Greek Sport. 
okay. who we talked about a little bit uh, on the margins, but who we haven't really broken down at length here. Greek Spore right now, by the way, a top 75 guy via Tennis Abstract's ELO rating. You look for him overall, 35 and 18 in his last 52 weeks, turns 25 at the beginning of July, currently at a peak ranking of number 120. You look at the month of May for him. Wins Prague, gets wins over Ota, Gambos, Ferreira Silva, Olivo, and Rosal, then goes to Bratislava, gets the win over Ignatic Diaz, Laheka, Clizan, Baez. In between, lost French Open qualifying, loses a match in straights in Hellebron to Yannick Hanifman, obviously a top 100 player. But two challenger titles in one month? Like, I mean, in the span of four weeks or whatever, five weeks? Like, I know it's a little bit cheating to throw him in the mix there because via May, he only really won the one challenger title, then was, I think, one in three or one in two in his next three matches. But, like, I'm cheating a little bit. At the same time, you win two challengers in a five-week span, you have my attention. Yeah. He has such easy power. Um... Such easy power. Could not agree more. And yeah, I mean, he, I think when he's playing kind of what we were talking about with uh, Cuevas, well, not to that extent, but when he's playing well, he's just better than everyone else. Um, yeah. He just has contr- good controlled aggression um, and he can win- get, get enough free points on the serve that it just all can come together to have a week like he just had. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, you know, I understand that selection uh, and I don't object. Okay, that's all I was looking for is a non-objection. Well, then, with that in mind, uh, give me your last two names, right? I believe you've got two more on okay. your list. Yeah, so I'll, I'll just yeah speed through these. Uh, so yeah. probably uh, uh, the person maybe I've talked about the most recently, uh, pa- uh, Bernabe Zapata Morales. Um, I when he won Heil Heilbron, um over he beat Galan in the final, who's a solid clay court player, um, who's had a little ATP success even this season. Um, I just thought that Zapata Murrell just played with great depth, great placement on his shots. He took his opportunity for uh, to put to hit winners when he could, and he was just a force to be reckoned with on clay. Great fitness. Um, and then the last one, and I'm just so happy to see him back and playing well, is uh, Tanazi Kokonakis. Um, mm-hmm. Kokonakis did not have a match, uh, did not have a match in the challenger he won, uh, where he did not win at least 80% of his first serve points. Um, and then the final against Kuakad, he won 93% of his first serve points. It was just great to see him back winning a uh, challenger um, and back from his injuries. I believe he just got at least a little bit injured again though right recently mm-hmm. so that was a little upsetting to see but i thought he deserved a spot for winning another challenger and for really uh just showing that you can fight back from injuries and to never give up no both excellent choices zapata morales and in general there's like a really sneaky they're not as good as their predecessors but there's a lot of really good spanish clay quarters right now yeah. we're all like 23 or younger and i don't know if their ceilings are top 20 top 30 but i do think top 100 for a bunch of them we're going to see them in that ranking for a long time zapata morales one of them we've talked about the cock on this podcast before yeah if he's healthy he belongs not just in the top 100 i would argue the top 50 and it's just like he's just never healthy that's the problem and it's just again you can only speculate about health so frequently my last two guys 
you know I'm on the Thomas Martin Echeverry bandwagon uh-huh. and just like semifinals in Biela six coming through qualifying and you know coming through qualifying round of sixteen and Hellebron and you know semifinals of Biela seven as well. He's just solidifying himself at that level. Forty six and twenty five now over his last fifty two weeks is the soon to be twenty one year old. I just I'm just intrigued. I feel like we've talked about him before, so I don't need to add anything else, but I'm certainly intrigued. And then the last one, the guy, a name we both share, Holger Rune, Mm -hmm. who, again, you have to include because from a tennis perspective, this guy is just ripping through absolutely everything the tours have to offer. And you look for Holger Rune, who is a top 70 player right now uh, via Tennis Abstract's ELO ratings. You look at the last 52 weeks, the World 231, which is a new career high for him, 54 and 21, David. I don't care if it's happening at the ITF level. I don't care if it's happening at the challenger level. If you're winning 70% of your matches, you are doing something right. And more likely than not, you are advancing up the rankings, which is exactly what we see from the former junior number one. And you look at the month of May, finals in Oeris, loses in three sets to Gasto Elias. He follows that up by winning Biela 7 the next week, uh, gets wins over Elias, Echeverry, Muller, Trungaliti. Uh, followed up this week in Lyon, making the quarterfinals before getting knocked out today. Uh, excuse me, the week after this was last week. Uh, quarterfinals before getting knocked out by Emer. Like, I mean, we, we were wondering at the start of the season, we've talked about him before, and I do want to talk about, again, him getting caught using homophobic remarks on court, what we think the punishment should be. That's a conversation we are going to have in a moment, but just the tennis for now. Rune's coming. Like, I know the cramping is stupid, and there are some immature yeah. things he does. There's like there's no doubt when you talk Holger Rune, immaturity is at the start of that conversation. But from a skill set perspective, from just the, the, the physicality perspective as well, he is going to be a top 100 player, probably a top 50 player for at least five to seven years. Yeah, so I have a lot of thoughts on Rune. So I'm trying to, in my head, I'm trying to say, what did I talk about first? Uh, so, for, so I'll start off by saying, in terms of the tennis only, because um, that's all we're talking about right now. Um, mm-hmm. So in the tournament he won, um, he held every opponent but Skatov in the final to 50% or less of their second serve points. And that included a, a quarterfinal win against Carlos Jimeno Valero, um, who is another promising youngster. He held Val- Jimeno Valero to 50% first serve one. In forty-two percent second serve one, that's really impressive. Um, I read da- I read some of Damien's article about Rune. Um, I actually like the backhand more than the forehand. Um, I think Damien likes the forehand. I agree with you. I agree with you. No, I like the backhand more as well. But I think his forehand was really good this and, and during this month. Yeah. Um, and I thought that the fact that he had both wings firing um, made it so much easier for easier for him to win. Um, like on a point-to-point basis for him to get uh, points from the baseline. I would also say that his mental toughness was superb. So against Daniel Altmaier, um, early in the tournament that he won, um, he saved two match points and won a final set tiebreak, uh, 7-6, 7-5 in the tiebreak. In the final against Trungaliti, uh, he won 7-6, 7-5 in the third set tiebreak. And really... Sure, it was very close. It was two points away from losing the match. Um, so I loved his mental toughness. The cramping has been a problem, but he held up physically very well um, against uh, against uh, Altmaier mm-hmm. and I really thought that maybe he's moving past all the cramping. So in terms of his tennis performance itself, I was impressed uh, with 
how he played. Am I wrong for saying that it feels as much mental, the cramping, as it is physical? Like, it does feel like he's a guy who gets so so worked up and so just eager and anxious out there on court that he starts to feel the cramps, but then, like, as soon as he starts cramping, it actually locks in his performance. And I don't think he, the cramps are that bad. I think they're just, like, a quick manifestation of nerves, and then he's able to play through them. Like, I, it's weird. There's no doubt about it. But I don't think the cramping's debilitating. I think it's something that certainly he gets over in the next three to, you know, three years. Yeah, yeah. It might be mental. Who knows? It might be mental. Um, I, uh, Anton Matusevich, uh, who's also playing well in Nottingham uh, this week, he said once about Rune uh, that— he just all he does is tennis so i wonder if he yeah, puts exactly. a lot of pressure on himself and almost too much pressure on himself you know where i, mm-hmm. I don't know where his body maybe starts to you know gets tight i don't i'm not totally sure but I, no for sure the other thing he does so well is just put returns in play yeah. right like he just seen, does such a good job of not only does he if you make the hit the ball in the center of the court either go behind you change direction on you and just make you suffer but his ability to absorb that first strike redirect it as well just his ability to stick stick around in matches he competes so so well there's just like again and he's not a guy with an overwhelming weapon like it's much more in the Bayes camp than a than a Juan Pablo Varias, uh, where you're just like, oh, that forehand's going to slap through people. For Rune, it's not his obvious power, but that said, it takes five minutes of watching him to be like, this guy's a tennis player. Like, this person was born to have a racket in his hand. But I think that he's getting more... I, I, I see development in terms of his uh Absolutely. game compared to maybe it was when I first saw him come on. Uh year or two ago uh a couple of years ago uh so mm-hmm. i really see his game developing that power it's not there yet it's not like Brias, for instance but it's i i think it's improving at a good rate and i i've been down on rune in the past so i i admit i i was wrong about him um i'm yeah. doing much better than i expected him to do you want to apologize about the Casper Zook stuff too while we're at it? Just get it yeah, all off your chest. Zook, Rune, who else? I, I've been wrong so many yeah. times. I feel like on Twitter, whenever I tweet about a player, uh, the opposite happens. Uh, yeah, but what about Cerebez Tormo, who you were right about? Like, you deserve, you should pat well, yourself on. on the back a couple she times. kind of, she disappointed me a little bit during the clay court season. <laughs> she was just, uh, I, you know, like, for instance, against uh, Zhang at, at, in the first, yeah. you gotta win a match like that. I, I think that she needs, you know. I just kept waiting for the comeback to happen. Yeah. I was like, where is this? Like, what's going on, Sarah? Um, no, you, you're you're not giving yourself enough credit, David. You're correct about things that you're not that you you know that perhaps there are too many to list there are too many to list or maybe i just or maybe you're not correct about anything because i can't think of anything off the top of my head but uh no i promise you're correct about many many things david and i will say one thing you were correct about as well and this is patting myself in the back is making the pivot to oliver crawford fandom and just last thing i well actually before we put the rune discussion to bed and i know i've kept you far too long and so i promise home stretch here david um Holger Rune, uh-huh. homophobic remarks. He's caught on video using slurs and just, again, they weren't directed at anyone but himself, but it's just unacceptable, A, to be speaking that way in public, B, to be speaking that way in general. In tw- I should have said it other way around. To be speaking that way in general in 2021, obviously unacceptable. To be doing it in public, right. even less so. Right. And just, it's this sort of immaturity 
to be honest, you expect from an 18-year-old. And, like, at the same time, that's why it's – you don't want to say expect. Expect's the wrong word. But it's, it's the sort of immaturity you see manifested itself in an 18-year-old who's had a lot of success in life and hasn't been, ch- uh, you know, challenged or questioned on a lot of the things he's done because he's been the golden boy everywhere he's gone. You talk about punishments moving forward. The ATP has opened an investigation. Ultimately, they will be the arbiter of what is or isn't appropriate, and we've seen the teeth or lack thereof on the ATP in manifesting itself in a decision like this before, so you don't get your hopes up. At the same time, what's appropriate here, David? Like, to end his life, probably a little bit too extreme. To suspend him for over, you know, over X amount of time even feels a little bit extreme. I say a month a month to three months like you know what'll make him think about that is you miss out on playing Wimbledon qualities or you miss out on parts of like the the plethora of opportunities that are available in the summer hard courts like I do think a suspension is reasonable here for just violating on-court conduct I apologize for my editorializing your thoughts well I think I just I a quick google or a quick twitter search I see that he's been fined uh, 1500 euros I fifteen hundred. That's it. That it seems like that's it. I I I don't want to. Uh, there. I don't want to. It looks like it. Just that's it. Um, mm-hmm. but I'm not. I don't want. I'm not a hundred percent sure. But just on my quick search, it seems like that's it. Um, I'll say this. I think the best. Uh, the best punishment. Because you're right. It's completely unacceptable. Um, the best punishment would would have been for him to get defaulted from that match. Uh. On the spot. If I mean, we can't expect umpires to know every Danish word in the book, but I think that would have been the best punishment because it would have taught him a lesson. He wouldn't have won the challenger, um, and that would have been a great lesson for him. I do think a suspension, it because it doesn't feel like based on his lame, terrible apology that he's learned anything. So I do think he needs to be suspended. Um, and if this, you know, quick Twitter search is right, it looks like he's not. So I. Down the road, I uh, hope, you know, if he does it again, maybe the ATP will come down harder next time. Uh, but I definitely think he should have been suspended, and I think it's unacceptable. But I think, I think the best punishment would have been for him to get defaulted from that match. Let's be clear. If he does it again, he should, he will be defaulted from the match, and he will face a suspension. But yeah. I just... <sighs> I think I like, both probably. Default and a suspension probably would have been the best, huh? I think I, – like, I don't know how you don't suspend him for a month here. Like you know what teaches him and you say, hey, you learned your lesson is by suspending him for a month and forcing him to be like, wow, I f***ed up. I really did. And I like – this was unacceptable to me. I realized what I did wrong. And it was also the apology, right? Like I understand the pile on has been immense. And there's no denying there's nothing we do better as a society now than pile on people who we are trying uh, – who have made a mistake because it's the easiest way to score Twitter likes, right? To just yeah. jump out and, and justifiably criticize Holger Rune again two things can be true all of the criticism he's received is deserved at the same time there has been a pile on because why not bank my 25 likes by saying hey homophobic slurs are bad like no they're bad like that is not what we should be discussing here what we should be discussing is what is the most appropriate mechanism to a 
educate Hogarune and why his actions were unacceptable, but B, ensure that they're not going to happen again in the future. And I just don't think a $1,500 check does that. Yeah. Like, I'm sorry, it doesn't. Yeah, and I, yeah, I'm not advocating for cancel culture, like canceling him at all. You know, like I'm not like a cancel culture type of guy. Like that's not what I'm well, saying. Well, cancel culture is not a real, whatever. Yeah, that's a discussion for another time. But I agree, go on. Yeah, yeah so sorry. like I'm just saying that like I think he should be held accountable for his actions. And I think that, his apology was so lame. It's kind of like, are you kidding me? Like, you got to be better than that. So, his apology was, "I'm sorry, I got caught on camera." Not, I realized the words I spoke were completely out of line, and that word shouldn't even be in my vocabulary at this point. And I will take it upon myself. It being Pride Month or the precipice of Pride Month, I don't know if it's June or May, but like. To, to educate myself on what I did wrong, to understand why this word should never be in my vernacular moving forward ever again. And it's like this will absolutely hang over his head until he makes an appropriate apology. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Like, you think if he's going to be make an appropriate apology? I don't think so. Five years from now, when he <laughs> makes a Wimbledon quarterfinal and they ask him about it, he'll be like, I was, a f- I was an idiot. I was a child. I didn't know what I was yeah. saying. I didn't educate myself well enough. I now have friends who are gay and all. Like, that's what it takes, right? To You go, yeah. again, you spend two years in college and you're, you're going to end up making a friend with at least one person, especially at the University of Michigan. You're going to have one friend at least who's gay. And it's like... That Holgerune has lived such a privileged private life. Privilege might be the wrong word, but such an inc- insular life. That's really the word. It's he's just been so much in his own business that there, just that education process wasn't there for him. And like, I think that's the key: is just how do we ensure he is educated to understand what he did wrong, so that he doesn't just do it again. Not a superficial apology, but a genuine. How do we ensure he realizes? Oh man, again, I f***ed up, and I can't do that in the future. And I sincerely apologize. I completely agree. Um, yes, because I think that's the good. apology that's... was probably worse than the actual. Like, was almost as bad as the, the lack of apology was almost as bad as the actual event, act itself. Uh-huh. Anytime someone invokes, oh, it's cancel culture, you know they did something wrong. Like, I'm sorry, anytime you turn to the broad strokes of, oh, cancel culture is doing this. Like, no, maybe you just f***ed up and you don't want to own up to it. Like, are we sure that's not just what happened here? And, yeah. like, that's what happened here. Yeah. And it's just, like, immediately people deflect, people get so defensive, and whatever. It is, I'm not, I, I get it. Like, pylons are horrifying, and they're part of the, they're the worst part of social media. Um... Yeah, this is yeah, cancel culture. Poor- this is just holding him accountable. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just like again, it's 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 a joke. It, w- w- the ATP, uh, a poor enforcement mechanism of punishment by the ATP. In other words, water wet. Story at eleven. Like it's <laughs> it's nothing we haven't heard before. But of course, again, that's where things are at with Rune. Now, last topic, most important topic. Speaking of things that went awry. Your opinions on Oliver Crawford? You you wanna you wanna fess up here? You wanna tell me your ba- you wanna join me on the Crawford bandwagon? Uh-huh. I'm giving you the opportunity before we end the podcast because Little Rock to see Crawford, who has been so so good on the future circuit of late, uh, get in, make the quarterfinals, win that first set six one on Goncalo Oliveira, and you think okay, if he can just win that second set, maybe he honest to God makes the final of this event. But for Crawford, curious your thoughts on him? Yeah, so. I, I probably am not as high in him as you are. Um, but I'll say this. He's a competitor. I love his fighting spirit. I He's very consistent. He gets good depth on his ground strokes. But 
continuing the theme of this podcast, I don't see a big weapon that I think can get him up to the highest ranks of the uh, ATP tour. Personally. No, it's fair. And he's 22 years old, 42 and 13 in his last 52. He has dominated the 15K realm. And just, again, I think what I'm so excited to see is him compete at the challenger level. It does his athleticism, his his floor as a player help him offset the fact that you're right, his ceiling may not be as high as others, that he doesn't have the 130 mile per hour serve or the 110 mile per hour forehand and backhand that he can just rip at a moment's notice. That's an interesting question. I very, very much agree with you. At the same time, I am so certain Oliver Crawford's going to become the best version of himself, and I do just I want to see him play at the challenger level because I'm curious what that ceiling is. Like, I mean, he took it to Polanski and Kelly, and those are two opponents you would want in your first two challenger level matches in Little Rock, but he took it to him, and like, it, that relentlessness, uh, it's going to catch really? a lot of pros who are like, fuck this. This is week eight for me. I don't want to be here in Little Rock. It's going to cause them a lot of difficulties. Yeah, he, that word relentless describes what I saw for him perfectly. He never gave up. He, he kept fighting and didn't, didn't seem like it mattered what the score was. He was always playing at 100%. And... That'll that'll get you somewhere because um, he definitely has. I'm not saying like he's like uh, this skillless hack. I'm I'm just saying yeah. he doesn't have this big, huge weapon. But he definitely he the skill. It, you can tell why he was he's been successful in futures and why he had a successful college career at Florida. Um, it is nice, you know, to, to have Riffis and uh, Crawford making together. You know, at these events, trying to make that transition. Having that camaraderie, is it, he mm-hmm. is, he's not going back either, right? They're both not, or are they? Well, so Crawford was gone after last year. Okay. Crawford left pre-COVID, which I thought at the time bold move, just given like it's COVID. There's not a full calendar. Why would you want to go start competing now? Well, if you can rip off 42 and 13 at the ITF level, might as well just go do that whenever you're ready to do that. Um, yeah, he so he's gone. He's full time pro. Riffis claims he'll be coming back. I mean, we'll see. Like you watch that game, seems pretty ready. Uh, he, he but seems, he seems bad, like he has a higher to me. I think Riffis has a higher ceiling than Crawford. In my limited viewing, I I can't like I can't thoroughly disagree with you. Like I I I I don't a hundred percent agree, but I don't disagree. Like. Riffis has the bigger game. He's got the bigger weapons, but there's just a relentlessness to Crawford that you can't fake. And so I'm super, super excited to see uh, just to see both of them compete throughout the summer because I think they can both have a ton of success. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, all right. But yeah, no, again, with that in mind, we, we could do 30 more minutes on all of you. When you have 14 challengers, you easily hit that hour and a half mark, which is we where we are at. And that is 150% the amount of time I told you we were going to take here today, David. So I will offer you the floor. Any final thoughts before we wrap today's show? Thank you for having me. Sorry, y'all, for going long. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I just no, was I, talking about this stuff. So for me, you know, it's it's fine, but I'm sure some people are bored. So no, we first of all, we had a month of Challenger tennis to catch up on. This is the podcast people expected, and I hope the podcast they were looking for as well. So again, David, congratulations to you on graduating. Congratulations to you on Stan Van Gundy's firing from the Pelicans, and. You know, again, more than anything else, you know you are always welcome back on the show. We look forward to getting you in the rotation more frequently over the next few weeks. Thank you so much, and thanks for congratulating me on graduating, too. It's uh, I'm unemployed now, so we'll see what happens. Yeah, no, hey, if you made it to this point of the podcast, tweet at TennisBlogger1, congratulations on graduating, oh. and then we'll know how many people listen from start <laughs> to finish. But, of course, David, always a pleasure. I will talk to you soon, my friend. Thanks so much. Hope all of you enjoyed today's episode with Cracked Rackets writer and our friend David Gertler chatting about everything that has happened on the ATP Challenger Tour. I won't lie, I did not anticipate an hour and a half episode, but speaks to how exciting and how fantastic, how high quality the action has been on the ATP Challenger Tour over the past five weeks. And again, when you see a Francis Tiafo or a Dennis Kudler, one of these guys have success at Wimbledon, it shouldn't shock any of you because we've seen them do it at the Challenger Tour. We talk all the time about the parity right now between all of the players ranked, honestly, in the top 200 on the right day. Anyone can beat anyone not named Novak Djokovic or Rafael Nadal. The quality of tennis on the ATP Tour certainly at a high point, and again, that parity at a high point as well. So it makes it a really fun time to be a tennis fan, gives us plenty of exciting stuff to discuss. And again, a thank you to David for taking the time to join us on the podcast today. If you'd like to read more about his May All-Stars, you can do so by checking out his article on our website, CrackedRackets.com. And of course, if you'd like to hear more about what happens week in, week out on the ATP Challenger Tour Mondays, our friends Damian Kust and Jakob Bobro recap all of the action. Again, moving forward, we will be sure to have David on the podcast more as well so that we don't get a backlog. We can make those episodes 45 minutes as opposed to an hour and a half for all of you moving forward. But again, so much happening day in, day out, week in, week out on the tour. It's hard to keep up with everything. If you've missed out on anything, though, rest assured you can catch up on it all on our website, crackrackets.com. We know Challenger Tour covered on the Great Shot Podcast. College Tennis making its return to our feeds this week as well. Chris Halioris, Matt Stokowiak going to join me to talk ITF kickoff weekend draft, to talk about the 16 host sites, to talk about who's going where, all of the fun associated with that weekend. So be on the lookout for that podcast later in the week. And then, of course, biggest storylines, results, controversies covered day in, day out on the Mini Break Podcast. Of course, like, rate, subscribe, review to this show, that show, our Cracked Interviews Podcast, and everything we're doing here at CR. If you need the more immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, we are at Cracked Rackets. You want to message me directly, I am at Great Shot Pod. A shout out, as always, to our super producers, Max Fleeter and Daniel Westoff, for the of an editing job they do day in, day out. A shout out as well to our friends at Turna Tennis. Again, call uh, email sales at uniquesports.com or call 800 554 3707. But with that in mind, for my wonderful podcast co-host, David Gertler, our super producers, Fligner and Westoff, our friends at Turna Tennis, and from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Karuskin. You know what we say. Hey, great shot. See you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>